Okay, 1 Kings 21, Naboth's Vineyard. It's on page 363 in our beautiful turquoise Bibles. Hope you all approve. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab, Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife, Jezebel, came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and give Naboth a prominent seat among the people, but put, put two scoundrels opposite him and get them to bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king, and take him out and stone him to death. So, the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written on them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying... Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death, as you do. Then they sent word to Jezebel. <laughs> Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth has been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive. But dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Thank you so much, Julie. And we will hear what happens next in a few moments. What a banger that is. These, these stories are really exciting. Um, and I wonder, well... In lockdown, we had a lot more time, and we all found ourselves spending a lot of it sitting on our couches, I imagine, um, watching box sets. Uh, uh, who has watched which box sets over the last year and a half? I'm going to start. Linda and I have watched the whole of Parks and Rec in about two months. Yeah? The Bevans watched all of the Marvel films in chronological order. 
That is a bit, I feel like I've just started, but we got as far as the first one and I'm still waiting for a chance to do the next one. Uh, okay, who, what else? Is anyone fans of uh, the West Wing? Any West Wing fans? Is it just me? Oh, we've got a West Wing fan over there. Good. Uh, anything else? Sorry? The, the Crown. The Crown. Yeah, that's an exciting saga. Never mind kings, queens. Right. Yeah? Star Wars. The whole lot. All of them. And all of the weird extra ones that they've done and the cartoons and all that stuff. There's so much, isn't there? There's so many more. I love The Wire. I haven't watched it for ages, but I love The Wire. Um, and the thing is with any of these stories, it is really easy for us to jump into something like this story of Naboth Vineyard and to start looking for, like, what's the moral of this story? What's the message? Because, like, Sunday School, or maybe VeggieTales, has trained us that every single story has to have a moral. It has to have a message. So whether it's Daniel in the lion's den or Jonah and the whale, we're just kind of, we want what that neat little tidy, treat people like this, don't do that, um, treat your parents kindly, all of those kind of things, tidy your room, whatever it is. And, and in this passage, it feels a bit like the message might be, if you find yourself being the king of ancient Israel, and then you marry someone who's a worshipper of Baal, don't let her uh, trump, uh, kill someone else on trumped up charges and then steal their vineyard, which is very interesting, but it's not very useful to us, I don't think. Because it's like if we jumped into a scene in the middle of a Marvel film and kind of assumed that, that that one scene from that one Marvel film is going to tell us everything. Now, it might be interesting on its own. There might be some interesting things going on. It might tell us a bit about those characters. But until we've looked at the whole Marvel film, it won't make much sense. And until we understand what's going on with Thanos and the Infinity Stone or uh, with President Bartlett or with uh, the uh, Skywalker family or any of these other things, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense until we know how these pieces fit into this bigger thing and how this bigger thing fits into the whole story. So I would like to know, quick question, who do we think in this story is the good guy? In the story of Naboth's vineyard, who's the good guy? Yeah? Yeah, Naboth seems to be the good guy. Uh, who's the bad guy? Ahab, Jezebel, oh, Ahab or Jezebel, a bit of disagreement there. Sorry? You think Ahab? Who thinks Ahab? Oh, who thinks Jezebel? Oh, it's split. Um, well, let's go through. You see, these, these are all comic book characters. They're all really broadly drawn. They're, it's almost like the, the Avengers, or maybe not the Avengers. What's the... It's like the bad guys in the Avengers. Someone's going to have to help me with that. Um, because we've got Jezebel. What a mean woman she is. Boo hiss, Jezebel. And then there's what a weak, measly, rubbish king Ahab is. And what a poor, innocent victim Naboth is. You see, these are all really broadly drawn characters. 
So let's start by thinking for a little while about Naboth. He tells the king, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And that's not just him being a bit of a hoarder of clinging on to the things he's got or having some sort of sentimental attachment to the land. So can someone grab a Bible? We all have Bibles in front of us now. It's very exciting. We're going to carry on being excited about this for a while. Uh, Could someone look up Numbers 36 uh, 36 verse 7? And someone else look up Leviticus 25-23. And just stick your hand up when you found one of them. Okay, Numbers 36 verse 7. Or Leviticus 25, verse 23. Who's got the numbers one? Okay, someone over there, read it out nice and loud for us. Thanks, Pippa. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay, anyone got the Leviticus passage? Great, yes, thank you. It is 25, 23, yes. Thank you. You see, built into the law of the land of Israel was this instruction that they shouldn't sell their land. And it exists for a reason. There's one writer who said that to Naboth, the vineyard is a gift from God. It's a symbol of God's provision, God's conquest, There weren't any banks, there weren't any mortgages, there weren't any retirement plans. So this is all he had. His land was his income, it was his resource, it was his home, it was his bank account, and it was his retirement plan. And in Numbers 13, I'm not going to get you to look it up, don't worry, God distributes all of the land to all of the people in such such a way as to make sure that everyone's provided for. So the injustice here isn't just about the king taking land from one person. The injustice here is about Ahab upsetting that, that way of understanding things. It's about, it's about Ahab seizing what he wasn't entitled to. You see, and because Ahab, you know, he just wanted somewhere to grow his vegetables. But to Naboth, it's God's whole provision. And if he sells it, he might have some cash. But if he wants to buy another vineyard, he's going to have to force someone else to break God's commandment. And so on, and so on, and so on. Because he doesn't have the power to force anyone else just to give up their land for him. There's this really deep injustice being done, and it's not just to Naboth, but it's to all of the people that Naboth represents. So what does Naboth do? He holds on to his integrity. He takes a deep breath, and he tells the king where to stick his offer, and it costs him his life. So now let's think about Jezebel. Jezebel's the foreign queen. Boo hiss! Let's do it again. Jezebel is a foreign queen. Boo hiss! Yeah, it's so pantomime, isn't it? What's so bad about being a foreign queen? We 
You see, she just doesn't understand the way that things are done around here. She's married into Israel from Sidonia, and all of the customs, all of the laws are completely alien to her. She doesn't understand how anyone can say no to her husband. He's the king. And if they won't just give it to him, then he should take it. She's playing by an entirely different set of rules. She doesn't see the land as something that's been given by God. She doesn't worship a God who provides for everyone. She is willing to use all of the levers of power and Naboth's own traditions of fasting just against this one faithful man. Okay, so Ahab. Ahab's a bit tricky in this because he's sort of here, but he's not here. You know, he like turns up. Uh, Naboth says, no, you can't have my land. And then what does he do? He sort of sulks like a teenager. Goes to his room, oh, I'm so sad, I'm so sad. Um, and then Jezebel's like, don't worry, I'll deal with this. And he just disappears. The whole of Kings 16 to 22, or 1 Kings 16 to 22, is like a takedown of his rule. These are all of the ways in which Ahab disobeyed God. But here, he's sort of here, but not here. So either he doesn't know what Jezebel's up to, or perhaps he doesn't want to know. Because one of the evils that he did, apparently, was marrying Jezebel in the first place. And that's not because God has a problem with Ahab pursuing his one true love. But it's because marriages of this sort with a foreign queen were just a political calculation. It was just a treaty between nations. Nothing more, nothing less. By marrying Jezebel, he gives power to a way of life which has nothing to do with Yahweh. He welcomes Baal worship, which included child sacrifice, into the life of the nation. And he leads the nation away from God. Okay, so those are the characters we've got at the moment. Uh, Zoe, I'd like you to introduce Elijah to us. Thank you. Sorry for giving you such a gruesome passage with so many difficult names in it. So you have found me, my enemy. Now that's a phrase that you can imagine in Star Wars or any of the Marvel films. It's, it's like Ahab's got Jezebel on one shoulder, tempting him away to the worship of Baal, and Elijah on the other shoulder, calling him back to worship of the one true God. In uh, fact, in, in chapter 18, Ahab and Elijah have another confrontation. They're always having confrontations like this. And he says, and he calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. And Elijah shoots back, I've not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. So now, here they are in Naboth's vineyard where Naboth has been killed. And it's like that tense moment where the the arch rivals finally meet, like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, like Voldemort and Harry Potter, or maybe like the Avengers and Thanos. I'm still trying to work with the, the Marvel thing. 
I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. You have caused Israel to sin. See, because Ahab, the king of Israel, is the Lord's anointed. He's meant to be the one who leads the people to Yahweh. Yes, Jezebel orchestrated the murder, but that doesn't absolve him. That doesn't let him off the hook. He's meant to be the one who rejects all other gods. He's meant to trust in the one true God to lead him. But instead, he's trusted Jezebel and Baal. He's trusted political dealings. He's trusted murder to get him what he wants. It doesn't matter that he wasn't in the room when it happened. He's failed in his responsibility to uphold those values. And Elijah is here to deliver the news, which involves a lot of gore and a lot of violence. So, I thought about putting you on the spot. I don't think I will, but how is this good news? How is all of this brokenness and corruption and exploitation, how is it good news? Well, I guess if we're going to try and draw any conclusion from this one little episode in the middle of 1 Kings, which is part of 1 and 2 Kings, which is part of the whole Bible, it's that when we lose sight of God's purposes, when we put our trust in other people or other things we end up hopelessly compromised. And we end up compromising how we treat one another. We may live in a world where business is business and it's normal to tread on a few people on the way up. There will be times in our lives when we have to choose between having the advantage, whether it's in work or whether it's socially, where we have to choose between being popular or successful or winning and being obedient to God. And often, that obedience means putting the needs of others before the needs of ourselves. To follow Yahweh is to live distinctively, even if it's at our own expense. So then if we look at this in the wider sweep of kings, well, I don't want to give away any spoilers. You'll have to keep coming on Sunday evenings to find out what happens. Or I guess you could have a look to 2 Kings 14 to 20. But I think it's fair to say that the kings set the culture. And time and time again, God's verdict is that the culture is rotten to the core. These men, and they are mostly men, who are appointed to represent God's people, let God and their people down. And the people suffer as trust in God gives way to idolatry and selfishness and greed. And isn't that so human? Like we can imagine, oh, this is, this is thousands of years ago, but you don't need to read many history books or even scroll down very far in the news to see that this happens today in our world around us. 
as we try to set ourselves up, we try to elevate ourselves, and we end up doing terrible things to each other in the service of our own greed and our own selfishness. Like the kings of Israel, we are called to be a light to all nations. But so often we let that darkness consume us. And at the end of this passage, there's a funny little coda. And I'd like Jonah to read it for us now. It's a weird little thing to find on the end of this story, isn't it? This man, this king who did more to arouse the anger of God than all of the kings of Israel before him, sticks on some sackcloth, goes around meekly, and that's enough. That's enough for God to set aside all of the disaster that's coming for him. Surely he should do more than that. But I think we're being pointed to something greater about God's nature. That this is all that God ever wants. For us to recognize the ways that we failed to humble ourselves and to receive mercy. God doesn't long to see these despotic rulers dragged through the streets, but to see them turn away from their evil ways, to repent and to receive mercy. And this is where this passage fits in with the wider sweep of Scripture, the bigger story. Because this mercy that God, because it's because of this mercy of God that he finally steps in and becomes a king in Jesus Christ. And here's the twist. Jesus doesn't become the one sitting on the throne. Jesus doesn't eliminate half the life in the known universe with a click of his mighty fingers. Instead, he places himself in the place of the victim. Jesus has a lot more to, in common with Naboth than he does with Ahab. Who gave up his life but remained faithful to God. And as he does this, he offers grace to us for even those darkest corners of our hearts. Jesus doesn't try to accumulate wealth or power or seize property or even cling on to his own life. Instead, he offers radical forgiveness, deep love. And this is the story which is still ongoing. When we talk about all of our God stories through the week, we share them because we are all wrapped up in God's bigger story. Jesus' death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And we here in 2021 live in light of his great sacrifice. We live in a culture which is set by our king of love, our prince of peace. So let's allow our lives to be shaped by our king, who died on a cross at the hands of of those he came to save.
Let's play our part in this great story of redemption and of God's love for all his people.